I'm very excited about this series uh, because it gives, it gives me a chance to talk about some really positive things. It gives me a chance uh, to say some things that, that don't always fit so well in a sermon. Um, so it's just a little bit more freer, uh, I guess, and a little bit more casual uh, of, a, of a venue here. Also, I'm excited because I get to say positive things that I think, that, that I hope, anyway, that you will resonate with. Um, I know folks are, are possibly listening uh, in right now on the audio recording or maybe on the podcast. Uh, you may be lying in your bed with COVID with your earbuds on. Uh, and I want this to give you hope, too. Uh, but there are so many things that our congregation has been through. And I, and I want this series to be about um, a vision of hope that shows how all of the stuff that we have been through, all the hard knocks, all, all of the, the, the losses, uh, and, and the gains, but some visible losses, are actually pointing us in a new direction, uh, a future that is bigger than the past. Uh, sorry, I think I just misquoted. No, it's bigger. I keep... I keep getting the title confused between bigger and better, but it's bigger than the past, and I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, first of all, good evening. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for coming uh, during this fearsome moment, this uh, third wave of the pandemic. Uh, it's got us all um, rattled. Uh, most of my immediate family has Omicron right now. Don't worry, I have not been with them. Um, there in Henderson. So it's all, uh, we all have our stories. Some of you may have already had it. Um, I expect we'll all get it one of these days. Um, so I hope that if you're here tonight, you're vaccinated, you're boosted. Um, but this has been a really, uh, to say the least, exacting, uh, exhausting time uh, for our congregation, for congregations, for our country, for the world. But I still believe, and I want to share with you why I'm going to start tonight. I believe that our congregation's future, in spite of all the obstacles, is bigger than the past. It's going to take all of us believing that and participating in that. Uh, and so I hope that, that you'll put your thinking caps on and uh, come along on this journey with me. And um, I'm looking forward to sharing my heart uh, and my passion with you over these next several weeks. Well, first, the bad news. Church decline has accelerated. And uh, even the poll, I don't even think the polls, at least the most recent ones that I'm reading by Barna and Gallup and all these, I, I'm not even sure they quite capture the speed with which COVID has amplified the dynamics that were already present in American life. It, it is like the pandemic has not only revealed so many things about uh, us, our church, our congregation, good and bad things, um, I think more good things about our church, but it's exposed a lot of bad things uh, about our culture, our nation, um, and I think it's, um, it's sped some things up 
that were already kind of churning and, and, uh, and on the move, like, say, church attendance and the decline of church attendance. Only 8% of Americans did not identify with religion in, in the year 2000. Today it's 21% and growing. So we're nearing a, a quarter of, of the American population. It doesn't, it's not that they've left Christianity for something else. It's just they've become none, what they're called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. 36% fewer Americans attended church weekly in 2020 than in 1993. About 23% uh, of Americans uh, attend church weekly. I think that's just the clergy. <laughs> um, I think that that tends to hide some things because there are there are just new ways of life. Let's just say you're a new grandparent. You love your church. Uh, you're, you're always there when you're in town, but you're going to see grandkids. Uh, and you're not at your church. Uh, you might be at your grandkids' church, or you're probably not. Um, but there's, there's more expendable income for a lot of folks. They're going to travel. They're going skiing. They're going to the beach. Uh, they might have a beach house. Uh, this, this is all different now than it was when I was a kid. Um, so there, there are a lot of other things that, that entertain us and kind of grab our attention. Uh, but it, for a lot of those folks, it doesn't change their love for their church or their participation in their church or their giving to the church. So that, that, you know, that statistic is, has a little wiggle room to me. Still, the trend is there of weekly participation just declining. Decline, decline. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, I want to show you something that I have hesitated to show you before. Because it's just so, it's really depressing. And uh, those of you listening online, uh, podcast, I'll try to describe the graph for you. Uh, but th this, uh, this first graph is from some number crunchers in our congregation who, who brought, who, who put all these numbers together. They, they've kept track of attendance in our congregation since, uh, this goes back to 1987. So this is through 2020, so right before the pandemic. So you may not, you probably can't see all these little numbers. Uh, these are years, 1987 to 1988. So each grid line going to the right, uh, all the way to 2019, 2020. Uh, this top, sorry, this top number is 1,400, so that's, that, that's 1,400 people per Sunday. <laughs> if you're new to this congregation, this, this really is mind-bending. Um, back in the 80s, uh, there were uh, two services, and they were full. Uh, and, and often on the high holy Sundays, like Easter or Christmas Day, the people sitting in the windowsills and out in the hallways and sort of the overflow room. Um, and, and these are offices of the late 80s, early 90s. Big, huge uh, attendance wave there. Um, so this is during the tenure of John Hewitt. And then there's a persistent decline there, just 
series of unfortunate events. Uh, but then you'll see there's excitement for a new pastor coming. Boop. Here comes Ron Crawford. Everybody, who's that guy? What's he like? I'm coming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what he's like. And then it's like, uh, oh, okay, all right. Uh, and then here comes guy sales. Whoop. We're really interested. This is great. Uh, I, I'm excited. New pastor. Everything's new. Uh, new creation. I'm engaged again. And it kind of leans this direction. Oh, here comes Mac. <laughs> Just a little bit. And then, okay, he's fine. Yeah. Uh, and, and then here where it stops is where the pandemic starts. Now this hides something. There's, this hides some things too about our present moment, uh, because here you it said it would say 491. Uh, by the way, if you're looking, if you're listening online, this looks like a ski slope that peaks on the left and declines all the way down to the ski lift entrance on the right. <laughs> it's a black diamond too. Some bumps along the way. But so, let's take this 491 number for example. Uh, if, if you were here in the 80s, it, yeah, that's really low. It makes you sad because you remember how it was. Um, on the other hand, during the pandemic, our congregation kind of came a sight of interest online. We did worship well. Uh, other people from other churches were looking for an experience. Uh, maybe their church was too small. They didn't have the resources. Uh, they, they engaged us. We had... Uh, 800 and some views early uh, a week early in the pandemic uh, and then some of those folks churches figured out how to do online stuff so they went back to their churches but we actually kept some folks uh, and we regularly have uh, over uh, well over 200 views a week even now and if you we have no idea how many people that is but that's more views than we were getting before so let's just say for, for uh, conversation's sake, we multiply each view by 1.5. Because we know a lot of these views are families or, or couples, and a lot are singles. So let's just say 1.5. Uh, you're looking at over 300 people adding to the people who are actually in the pews. That's a conservative estimate. So we're actually, there's an argument to be made here that we've reached a, a, you know, a low point here and there, and there may be some inching back up. Now, I'd be very surprised if we inch back up here. But what my argument is, is the wheels are not coming off this place. Okay? Uh, we're, we're making new connections with folks all, all over the city, all over the region, and really around the country. There's some folks checking around the world. Uh, because they, they find meaning and, and purpose. Uh, and quality, and, and challenge, and Jesus. Now here's another really interesting thing about the narrative of decline with our congregation, because I, I know it's painful if you've been here a long time. Again, if, if you were here for this, and you've seen all of this, it can break your heart. And you can even take it personally, and you can say, what's wrong with my church? Look at this. That's weekly church attendance for all U.S. adults. 
going back to 1993. You see the similarity? So I'll click it back and forth. Oop. I'm especially interested in right here. So if you go back to 2009. Right, where, where, where the line is on that one? Where the next one starts? Yeah, so 93. So 1993. So on the other one. So the other one. And then 1993 is right here. Yeah. Okay. Alright. There's even a little corresponding blip right there to um, 2016, 2018. It's about two years off. Sorry. There's that little blip there. And then that little blip there. Uh, I didn't become pastor everywhere, <laughs> so I don't know what that's about. Um, so if you, again, if you're listening by podcast or online, uh, I'm trying to make the point that, um, that there are certain ways that our congregational decline in weekly attendance mirrors that of the nations, um, and that what we're going through is something much big, it's about something much bigger than just us. So that's not great, but it's also not, it's a way of saying don't take everything we've been through personally. It's not all about us. It's about an epoch of change that we're living through. We are living through uh, a monumental shift in the way people uh, experience the divine, engage with other human beings, with institutions, period. Uh, and, and, and we have been sort of pulled into that centrifugal force of, of change. Uh, but wait, there's more bad news. <laughs> um, so Americans in particular are, are really disillusioned with our country and, and each other. Some more, some more data. 71% say the United States is on the wrong track, according to the NBC News poll in, back in October. <laughs> Probably has not improved much, do you think? Um, 71%. Uh, only 55% of Americans trust Americans. In other words, we, we don't trust ourselves, our country, our neighbors, um, to make political judgments that are in the best interest of the nation. That's almost half the country doesn't trust the country. That's a Gallup poll, October 2021. 55%? 55%, that's right. Yeah. Don't, uh, of Americans, don't trust Americans <laughs> to, to make wise political judgments that are in the best interest of the country. And, and then if you take, I know the official number for COVID deaths is, in the, where are we, around 900,000 now or something? We're getting close, I don't remember. But the excess, if you, if you take excess deaths, it's sort of like uh, if you go back, and this is a, a you know, a, a sad analogy, but the, remember the Iraq body count? That, that was based on news reports. Um, but a scientific journal actually did a study uh, that quadrupled those numbers. There's over a million civilian deaths. 
Uh, and that was people on the ground talking to families, looking at census reports and, and uh, death reports. It was a scientific analysis. So if you, if you transfer that kind of scientific analysis and look at excess deaths and who's probably died of COVID, it's over, it's well over a million. So in less than two years, one out of every, what, 330 Americans have, have died of this. Um, it's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's bad news because it didn't have to be this way. Uh, for so many reasons. We, we, uh, we failed to invest over the course of decades in programs of social uplift and, and health, uh, health conscious institutions. Um, we have a for-profit healthcare center. I mean, sorry, whoops. Uh, we have a for-profit healthcare system. Um, that many people have to depend on or, or they're, not, they're not able to afford to buy in. It's, COVID has revealed all the weaknesses of, of these uh, really complex social systems. Um, and it's not just healthcare. Just think about if you have a Netflix subscription. How many documentaries have you seen over the past 15 years that are about system breakdown? Something being broken, something not working right, whether it's criminal justice reform, or, or the way the legislature works, or climate change. It just, it feels like we're living through this just grand existential crisis uh, that, that is disorienting and disheartening. And it's hard to, especially for the younger you are, the more future out ahead of you you have, the more threatening it can feel. Uh, I was talking with one of my mentors who said his granddaughter said she does not want to have children because she doesn't want to raise them uh, in a world like that this is this threatening. Uh, and primarily her concern was climate change. And it, I, I know that's anecdotal story, but that's a real dynamic unfolding among our young people. Uh, when I was talking to Anna Carter Florence about coming to preach here, we were talking about all the things the church is going through and churches are going through. Anna Carter Florence, by the way, preached here last summer. She's one of the guest preachers during my sabbatical. Wonderful person. I'm so glad she's moving to Black Mountain. Um, she'll be a, a longtime friend for us. But I remember something she said that was really striking. She had been in a conversation with a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. You've probably heard of Walter Brueggemann. Old Testament scholar taught it. Um, Columbia Theological Seminary was a colleague of Anna Carter Florence's for years. Uh, and, and he told a group of pastors, uh, one of the things that you're living through is uh, a ca a capitalism, a capitalism that has not kept its promises. So ca capitalism was supposed, to, was supposed to be the rising tide that lifted all boats. Uh, and and when, I, when I was an infant, that was the, the language, that was the message in the air. Um, and, and, it's, and it has unraveled, it has been exposed, it doesn't work. Um, Supply-side economics doesn't work, trickle-down economics doesn't work. Look what, look what has happened to us. Look how fragile we are. Um, and I'm not saying I know what the political solution is to that, but when you have a scholar like Walter Brueggemann saying capitalism has not kept its promises, our ears can perk up and at the very least take him seriously. 
Okay, uh, but now the good news. So that, we could spend a long time on bad news. It's, bad news is pretty obvious. What I, what I want to emphasize today is the good news. And this really starts with good news for our congregation. We live in a growing city. That's actually one of the telltale signs of whether a church can grow. Uh, is the city, is the community growing? I used to pull my hair out uh, in a former congregation uh, where the, you know, the onus seemed to be on me oftentimes to grow the church. Uh, and I would have to sit down with, with whoever was trying to push me outside to go, as they say, uh, to the highways and the hedges um, and say, can you tell me where are, can, can you show me some new people in the community that I can go visit? Nobody was moving in. Um, and, and everybody that was there was spoken for. Uh, you know, and the Methodist church a block away, and a block away from the Methodist church was the Presbyterian church. Um, and we all lived on the same street, Main Street. And we traded members. I'm mad at him, I'm going here. Oh, now I'm mad at him, I'm going to go over here. Uh, it was just, you know, reshuffling the deck once a year. But it's not like that here. We have a growing community. Um, we, we, have, uh, we have leverage there. Um, and, and I think that gives us an opportunity to tell our story, but we need to tell it well because I think it's a compelling story, and that's what this is about. Another thing. That's the first thing. The other thing is we have removed significant social barriers uh, to belonging. Uh, and, and the flip side of that is that our leaders, uh, and, I, and I think the, all of you, uh, and I think who we have attending in person and online are engaged. Uh, I, I describe this as the remnant back in December in a sermon. Uh, you're, you're the remnant uh, to, to make a, an Old Testament analogy of where we are, having been through so much. You're still here. The people we have here are engaged. You're engaged. You're, I mean, you're here on Wednesday night in COVID <laughs> to listen to me. Boop. You're engaged. That's good news. When I talk to our leaders, uh, and when I talk to, to folks who are coming here that are new, uh, they care about the work that we've done really recently to remove these social barriers to belonging. It, it is really remarkable how without fail in every conversation I've had for a couple of years now, that always comes up and they really appreciate it. And it's a reason that they're interested and that they're and they're hoping to invest and be part of, of our community. So, we live in a growing city. We're making smart decisions about our identity and our focus. And here's a third thing, and this is going to become a big conversation around here over the coming months. <coughs> We're centrally located in a city whose downtown is developing in our direction. So this, this quadrant of the city is really kind of the last piece that's really close to the heart of downtown that hasn't seen a whole lot of development. Um, 
And, uh, and that puts, that, that gives us an opportunity and a responsibility. So if you look at right down the road at the Sheraton, that's about to change big time. Huge hotel, condos, uh, I think there's going to be like a little um, earth fair or something like that, right across from the Y. Um, it, things are, are going to change whether we want them to or not, in other words. The skyline is going to keep changing. Uh, but it's coming our direction. We're going to have new neighbors. We're going to have even more new neighbors, I should say. And uh, we'll talk later about how we want to be a part of it. Uh, so I wanna, some of you may have read the book by Sam Wells, or you may have it and intend on reading it. Uh, or maybe you just read the first chapter or two. Um, I'll have an outline I'm going to put in the back at the end of this uh, so that you can take that home with you. Um, and it can help serve as a kind of guide for the highlights of the book. But Sam Wells was, uh, I got to know Sam as the, well, he was the dean of Duke Chapel uh, while I was a student there uh, for most of the time that I was a student. And uh, for a couple of years, right after I, I left the pastor to go back to school, uh, we, you know, I wasn't pastoring, I wasn't preaching on Sunday, so Aaron and I went to church at Duke Chapel. Uh, I really fell in love with uh, the, the congregation there, the liturgy, and especially Sam and Sam's preaching. Um, and as people there would say, God sounds great in an English accent. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I envy Sam's English accent. Um, he's just a, just a very understated preacher, but if you sat there and listened and focused, uh, there was a lot of meat on the bone. Uh, so I really trust his judgment. He's moved to, back to London. He, he's an uh, Anglican uh, priest. Now he is the vicar of uh, St. Martin in the Fields. And this is a picture of the outside. It's in the middle of Trafalgar Square, like right in the heart of, of London. Um, beautiful congregation, and uh, I'm so glad Sam is there leading them. But I, I, I want to steal uh, from Sam. Some of the, I have been stealing from Sam all along, but I, I want to put this book in front of you so that um, if you're interested in reading it, you can. If you're not, I'm still going to uh, cherry pick some of the things I think are really applicable to us and the moment we're in. Sam begins uh, early in the book talking about um, a kind of past way, past ways of thinking about the Christian faith that Christians have held that are no longer compelling. And now they're not only no longer compelling, but they're getting in the way. And one of these, uh, he outlines is three different problems, ways of thinking about the problem of life. The problem, you know, if, if you imagine faith engaging the problems of life, how do we articulate what that means? He says, uh, one of the ways Christians have articulated this is to say death is the problem and Jesus is the solution because Jesus saves us from death and gives us eternal life. Uh, it's a very, for a time that you could drive crowds into the tent meeting with that message all day and all night. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It's not so compelling now. Um, a similar kind of problem, uh, solution, dynamic he identifies is sin and evil is the problem. We've got to get to the bottom of this sin and evil. We've got to help save people from their sin. Jesus is, 
is the one who gives us forgiveness, uh, and that's the solution. Uh, that's also been a very compelling, uh, sort of abbreviated version of a compelling story for people. Um, both of these versions of this story are compelling to me, uh, and I think probably to many of you, but they don't quite lift the luggage for everyone anymore. Um, try this experiment this weekend. Uh, go downtown and run up to a stranger and say, um, hello, my name is Joe. Did you know Jesus died for your sins? And then watch them either look at you in horror or slowly slink away <laughs> and, and try to vanish back into the crowd. Uh, short way of saying, the, the, the kind of ways that we have thought about Christianity and what's compelling about it are changing. And Sam's trying to say to us, there's a different way to narrate the problem and the solution. So there are old-fashioned ways that we can keep forcing, forcing on people. But there's a new kind of imagination he wants to outline to say, yes, we know things are wrong, we know that there is a narrative of decline, but... There's another way of thinking about this that can be helpful not only to congregations, but also the congregation's neighbors and the cities in which they've been sent to, to live and minister. So rather than talking about death being the problem and internal life being the solution, or sin and evil being the problem and forgiveness being the solution, I know that's not true. He wants to say isolation is the problem. And that Jesus reveals the heart of God and the paradigm of abundant life. Now that's a different thing. And I think that's actually something that can gain traction in a country where a lot of people actually feel isolated. In fact, one of the reasons that I believe so many people uh, are easily duped or compelled by um, false narratives is because they are isolated. And they don't have strong bonds to, in, in the communities in which they, they live. Uh, that's not the whole answer. But I do think that's an issue. It's been an issue for a long time. Um, Americans have become more isolated. Loneliness is a, is really has been a pandemic, if you will, long before COVID. Um, that's been a problem for a long time, back to when I was a little kid. Uh, because of the, the ways that um, uh, our culture teaches us to chase success. And we, we, we're, we're taught to, uh, to be successful and to, we're taught to, to um, sort of take care of ourselves and live our lives as individuals or, or at least just pay attention to our families and uh, try to put food on the table. But there's less of a communal dynamic. Um, and it, it's a different way of life. People in other countries find it strange. They find it strange that we don't live with our, our parents and our grandparents. We're all trying to do this by ourselves. And that's another thing that COVID has unveiled, how vulnerable we are in our, uh, our independence. Think about a family, a, young, a family with young children and how vulnerable, uh, especially now with those under five, children under five still can't be vaccinated. These young families are really going through it, especially in areas of the country where it's really cold, really cold during the day, and the kids can't even get outside and play. Um, it really is a debacle. Um, but, you know, if we lived in villages, if we lived in, in larger family households, these younger families would have more help. 
uh, Aaron and I found out the hard way <laughs> during the hardest parts of the pandemic for us. Um, so isolation is the problem, according to Sam, and I agree. And so what he wants to say is that there is a way to think about church as a center, as a community center. And this really isn't new to our congregation. In fact, the most recent uh, grand renovation we went through about 15, 17 years ago had that in mind. You know, we want to retrofit our, our buildings, our properties, so that we can share them. And I think what, this, what Sam is saying is um, not only can you merely share them, you can actually form your congregations in ways that you're actually the animating center of the community in ways that draw people in uh, and, and that animate them and equip them to be the best versions of themselves, no matter what they believe. Uh, so it's a, really, it's a really interesting twist that he puts on what the problem really is, isolation. So he wants to say that church, if we can reimagine church as an invitation to enjoy God just as much as God enjoys us. So how do we, how do we begin to, um, to build on that kind of vision? He offers a sevenfold proposal for congregations that I'm going to get to. First, I want to tell you, this is the inside of St. Martin and Fields. I want to tell you a little bit about how St. Martin and Fields has done this. Uh, First of all, uh, I, one of the things that strikes me most is this, it's not a stained glass window, uh, it's a clear window where the, uh, I don't know what that's called, the iron panes, you know, the grid work that holds the glass together. Uh, if, you're, if you're not able to see this, uh, if you're listening by podcast, um, we're looking at a picture of the inside of St. Martin Fields. Uh, and the grand stained glass window is actually not stained glass that, that hangs over the chancel and centers the, the congregation's view. It's clear glass, and it looks something like, uh, uh, vaguely like a cross with a portal of light right in the heart. So already you can tell that these are folks who have a, a kind of alternative imagination about things. They haven't given the cross away, but there's something uh, clearer about and eternal, infinite. Um, and that's what I see. I see a portal to a new world. This is uh, a picture of one of their nightly concerts. And, and this is where the, the vision that uh, Sam is trying to lay out becomes really compelling to me. This is just one of the things that they began doing uh, back in the 50s and really amplified it in the 1980s. Because you may know this, uh, if church decline is affecting us now, then Europe, Western Europe, was the canary in the coal for all of them. All of these things that happened to them a long time ago. Uh, you, you go to cathedrals across Europe now, and they're, they're tourist sites, uh, mostly. Um, not so. Not so here. They did it differently. And this is, the, this is the kind of thinking. I'm not saying we want to replicate what they've done. What I want us to try to catch 
is the spirit with which they've done things to become a community church, uh, a downtown city church that's thriving every day of the week. And this is the, one of the ways that they do it. They have concerts. They're, they're famous for their music academy. If you travel to London, uh, buy some, get on their website, their church website, and buy tickets to uh, a concert of sacred music. All week, all, not every night, but probably the most nights of the week, three or four at least, they have a concert, a ticketed concert, in their sanctuary. This is a picture of one of those concerts. Choral music, chamber music, um, all kinds of wonderful, wonderfully gifted musicians uh, from around the world come, uh, and they have this beautiful venue. And so the concerts actually have a way of, of drawing people in to the church. The people that pay for the ticket, the money goes to the artists and to their mission for the homeless. So not only do they have this, this really real center of gravity for the musical arts, but they have a historic commitment uh, to the poor and especially to the homeless in this downtown London. And so they have this kind of... Um, you know, economy. It's a new kind of economy where people bring their gifts and their money uh, and they turn a profit, but the profit is put right back into helping others who, who need that care. I'll get a little bit better view there. This is their crypt. So underneath the, the sanctuary is a crypt that they have turned into a cafe. And it is the most popular cafe in London. <coughs> so this is a, you know, this is a misleading picture because it's empty. <laughs> um, but that's the kind of imagination that they, that they, that they have, uh, to, to turn something that would have otherwise been empty into a place of community and communion. So it's a draw, it has a gravitational pull for, for different kinds of events. This is also in the crypt, and that's a jazz concert in the evening. Perhaps we can put some of these pictures on the website too, but folks, we'll, we'll work on that. Yeah, so if you're listening and you're, and you're you know, maybe you've already turned this off by now, <laughs> if you're listening by podcast, but uh, I'm showing pictures of St. Martin in the Fields. Uh, if you're there at your laptop or something, you can Google St. Martin in the Fields and go uh, search their website. You'll see some of these pictures there and you'll get a sense of their, uh, the, the dynamism of what they're about, their community. Um, and, and see, I, I think we are already doing some of these kinds of things. I also believe we're building the, 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 the scaffolding, the kind of frameworks to do these kinds of things in the future. I don't mean having ticketed concerts every night, but I mean using our assets, our gifts, 
our strengths, and also borrowing from the assets and gifts and strengths of our neighbors, and inviting them here and creating spaces for all kinds of folks to, to flourish. And we're going to talk more about how we've broken ground on doing that kind of stuff uh, in another, uh, for, actually for next week. So I want to leave you with uh, the seven the sevenfold proposal for congregations, and then, then I'd love to hear any of the responses that you have to what I've said or anything that you've, you know, anything that you've, um, that struck you tonight or scared you. Uh, so here's the sevenfold, sevenfold proposal for congregations that Sam Wells outlines. Uh, the, these are the ingredients he says you need. Um, for your congregation to flourish in this, this new way. You know, how, how can a congregation like ours flourish in the 21st century in spite of all the odds and in spite of the narrative of decline? He says be a, a community that, that is in, lives in contrast to fear. Become a recognizable community of hope. And he centers in on, on giving up the fear of enemies, especially the fear of the other. I mean, that's really what's driven a lot of the pain that we're going through as a, as a society, fear of the other. Uh, and, and many congregations have become insular uh, and have, actu have actually participated on the wrong side of history, I would argue. Uh, in, in terms of conversations about race and sexuality and uh, uh, sociological dynamics and divisions that are just inherent in American society. The church has actually exacerbated those, made those kinds of divisions worse. Sam is saying, stop being afraid of the other. Uh, that the Christian life calls us to love our enemies, but even more to embrace them and, and, and see them as gifts. No, that's number one. Number two is, in contrast to exclusion, be shaped by a diversity of gifts. Cherish those with whom Jesus spent the most time. And for Sam, that's those on the edge. In fact, the motto of the congregation of St. Martin in the Fields is being with God on the edge. And what he means by edge is that uh, Jesus came to the outskirts. He came to those who had been cast out. He came to those who had not been taken seriously. Uh, those who were pronounced unclean. Those who just didn't fit in. And that's where he came and spent most of his time ministering the sick, uh, the poor. Um, he was wild, I'll tell you. Uh, but, but to cherish the that, that's the heart of their mission. Uh, it, every day, their mission points them to the edge. I mean, it's, it's nothing we're not doing in many ways. But I love the way that they, he articulates that for his congregation. So in contrast to fear, in contrast to exclusion, number three, in contrast to despair, just to walk with the dis dispossessed and to recognize that that walk along Side the dispossessed will, will draw you into suffering too and, and in that suffering you can recognize opportunities for transformation. The, the American dream narrative sends us away from suffering. 
away from the poor, away from those who have not been successful in life. Jesus is not to be like them. Jesus goes towards them and lives with them and befriends them and, and, and lives the consequences of doing that. So in contrast to fear, in contrast to exclusion, in contrast to despair, in contrast to decline. <laughs> he says one of the ingredients to becoming this kind of thriving congregation is to recognize the fi our financial need. And we have financial need. Every year I've been pastor here, it's just really clear. Maybe we made budget, maybe we came under and we got to go into our reserves. Uh, it's always just this fine line. Every Christmas, I've, I've got to take Rolaids, you know. I, I, I finish the, the Christmas Eve sermon, and I go back to my office, and then I start popping Rolaids until uh, December 31st. Um, it, it, it's an exhausting way for, for our congregation to, to keep trying to maintain uh, this approach, where we're the only ones uh, who are doing the giving to sustain ourselves. Uh, what, what, um, what Sam's trying to get us to see is that there are so, there's so much abundance around us that we, that we can invite into our congregation and have a share in. And part of the way they do that is that they invite people to come uh, and, and bring their money for a sacred music concert. And again, they use the proceeds from that to support these other ministries. So it, it really is this kind of gift and exchange economy that serves as an example to the wider economy for how it might work if it were um, more humane. So contrast to fear, contrast to exclusion, contrast to decline, contrast to defensiveness. And by that, he means to create centers of artistic flourishing. Um, we certainly have that going on. Uh, we can keep building on that. I mean, I think of AFTA all the time when I think of one of our closest uh, things in common with St. Martin's, St. Martin the Fields. Uh, every weekday, especially Monday through Wednesday into Monday through Thursday, um, it's hard to walk down the hallway without hearing a trombone or a drum set or fiddle, or piano, um, or a guitar, or a banjo, or someone learning how to sing. Uh, and some of the most enchanting memories I have so far of my, of my um, being a member of this church and enjoying moments with, with everyone uh, are after uh, um, Asheville Youth Choir concerts. Wow. So we're, we're doing, I mean, I see us already having all these ingredients, but I want to name them because I think he names them well. Established congregation as a fertile center for creative and artistic flourishing. And then he says, in contrast to an inward focus. Uh, and by that means, uh, he wants us individually and corporately to be seen as blessings to the neighborhood. And, he, and he, uh, he quotes William Temple. You've probably heard this quote before. William Temple named the church the one institution that exists for those outside of it. 
So rather than, than focusing inwardly uh, on our little church growth strategies and things like that and our little problems, we actually open our, open our minds and our hearts to what's going on in the world. One of my favorite questions, uh, and it's a strange question um, to have as a favorite, but where is, where is the blood crying out from the ground? We get this kind of question early on in the scriptures. Um, Cain and Abel, there's blood soaking in the ground. That's what gets God's attention. Uh, and, and that's one of the questions congregations can ask to get ourselves out uh, of our own insular church, inner church world. Where are people suffering, in other words? Where are people being hurt? Where, where are human beings being diminished or taken advantage of? Uh, where, where are their lives, um, where, where can we see people's lives not thriving uh, where they are and what they're being asked to do probably for others who have more than them? Where are people being sacrificed? Uh, and I think that kind of question can really snap us to attention uh, and open up pathways to friendship for us and also pathways for flourishing for others and ourselves. Uh, and then he calls the church to be a learning community. So in contrast to denial and the ways we sort of think of ourselves as having all, all the answers, but to think of ourselves as a learning community, always open to discovery and recognition. And I think, we, I think we've actually done that well here too. This is a congregation that knows how to learn. In fact, one of, one of the, the compliments that I most appreciate after a sermon, that I, and I would say it's probably the one I get the most often. I'm not saying I get them often. But when I get them, this, this is one of my favorites. Um, and I'm not asking for compliments. Um, I, I get plenty. So uh, it, it's, I've never seen it that way before. Or I've never heard it that way before. That, to me, tells me that I'm ministering with a congregation that enjoys seeing things in a new way. And when they do, they're not threatened by it. They actually see it as an invitation to, to deeper relationship with God. I think that's part of one of the ingredients. We have all these ingredients. So where I began with bad news, I want you to hear this good news. I listen to a world-class, we're reading a world-class minister in a world-class congregation that that is thriving in spite of being in Western Europe, <laughs> where hardly anybody goes to church anymore. It's a center of, of faith and, and revelation and friendship and arts and beauty. Uh, it's an alternative sacred economy in the midst of a, a world, uh, a, a world, worldly powerful economy that is the city of London. Um, and rather than being just an empty tourist attraction with somebody standing in the foyer making sure nobody causes any damage to the place, every day it's thriving. Every day. And the ingredients he says you need for that, that kind of thing to rise up, are the ingredients I see all over our congregation. So I want you to hear that I see that I want you, I want to invite you to see it too, if you don't already. All of these wonderful ingredients are already here. 
and many of them have already sprouted up and, and been growing for years. And I'm excited about that. Questions? Any questions you may have? We've got about seven minutes on that. Let me give you a mic. I'm really impressed by uh, what what we're uh, done. Here we go. I think it. Anyway, really impressed with what you're sharing with us, um, and particularly how even if some one of these persons who are visiting the cafe or or the concerts, even if they don't show up on Sunday, they're still getting a really fresh perspective on what faith can be. Hearing jazz in the place of church. Wow. But I'm wondering, um, how has this translated into their Sunday worship attendance? Is this created an increase in um, among the congregation itself? Do you know? I, I don't know what it's I don't know what it was like pre-pandemic. Um, I know now they're gathering back. Uh, they're gathering back in the sanctuary like we are with masks. Um, they're past the Omicron wave, I think. Or it's you know, they're on the other side of the wave. Um, I'm not quite sure how many they have in worship. Um, but I know just from um, the, the way that Sam has described those, those Sundays and just from certain pictures that I've seen that um, it's, they have a crowd. And I wouldn't say they're, they're packed in like sardines or anything, but they have a crowd. Yeah, it, it's, it's remarkable. I'm not quite sure how many, they have multiple services that are across the week too. So, and I think that's one of the ways that we envision our future post-COVID is having a, a service on Sunday, perhaps a, a, something like an even song or a Vespers every Wednesday night from September through May. Uh, we're, we're dreaming about that. It's not in place yet. And we'll kind of experiment with that. Um, but the, the closer we have neighbors coming to us, and the more likely people are around us to just wander in, we want there to be more opportunities for them to experience a worship service uh, during the week, not just Sunday morning at 11. So we're, we're thinking about that too. Um, but again, again, they're an Anglican church, so it's, they're hardwired to do, you know, uh, this version of the Eucharist, Holy, you know, right one, and then right two, right one's at 8.30, right two's at 10.30, uh, and then in the week, during the week they have, you know, these other services for, for Eucharist, they call it. Um, but yeah, the, the, both their worship services and their other events, yeah, it's, it's not just a, a concert venue. It, the, the heart of what they're doing, as far as I can understand how Sam articulates it, is there a, the heart of their community is a heart of worship. I just wanted to observe, since I was in the UK a couple of years ago, and I know many of you have traveled there also, the tourist attraction church, that's step two. The last step is you're a bar. And we saw so many churches that were bars. Or something else. Just not a church anymore. So the fact that they're still in Traveler Square, in London, doing their thing, um, they have not even slid to tourist attraction yet. Because there's so many churches there that are, they're, they're not a church anymore. Um, and that was disheartening. But this church isn't. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, y'all.
choir 30. After choir. After choir o'clock. Uh, any, is, is there one more question? Do the other take away from that graph just to hire a new minister every year? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Do you want to be on the search committee? <laughs> so Matt, one of the things I was thinking uh, in looking at the graph too is the cultural uh, connotations of some of those things from the 80s where it felt like everyone habitually went to church. I did because there was nothing else going on on Sunday or Wednesday. Those were kind of geared toward the church. But as the culture has changed, I think those who came on the edges, who just came out of habit because there was nothing else to do, they had other choices. And those who continue to go, you phrased this church, these are the people that are engaged. And I'm guessing some of those numbers were similar. Back then, the people who were truly engaged and the people who came because that's what we did. And so those are, I don't, I don't know what to do with that, but I wonder how much the change in having, I think, I can't remember who called that seculosity. There are so many other religions, like entertainment and sports and all of these other things that capture our attention. And we have to make a choice. And so not everybody chooses Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Okay, so, so next week I'm going to be talking about uh, the, the, the theme tonight was really about letting go of the past and, and, and opening our minds and hearts to the possibility of newness, a new future, a bigger future. Um, next week we're talking about uh, breaking new ground. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you in more detail some of the ways that I see us actually activating, uh, embodying some of these the, the, ingredients that Sam Wells is talking about. And, and we'll weave that together with some of his uh, further insights. So next Wednesday night, that'll be part two. Following Wednesday night, part three, that's the end. Uh, and then after that, uh, if everything goes according to plan uh, and a comet doesn't hit planet Earth, um, then uh, the deacons will be talking about some really concrete details about our, uh, our campus which will actually expand and enable us to expand the ways we're thinking about a lot of these things. Uh, and then after that, it's going to go to the congregation. Because the deacons say, hey, this goes to the congregation. It's going to go to everybody. And it's going to be round tables, and it's going to be engagement. Bring your, bring your uh, minds and hearts. Get ready to talk about all this kind of stuff and put it uh, and, and make it concrete. I really, if you really unique time in our congregation's life. Just just super rare for any church to have these kinds of opportunities. And it's coming. I'm excited. All right.